Today on CityCast Chicago, candidates are making their final pleas to voters. And we've heard a lot of speeches and we'll hear even more tomorrow. Most are likely forgettable, but former President Barack Obama's were not. And like all presidents, he had help. Cody Keenan was Obama's director of speech writing. His new book is Grace, President Obama, and 10 Days in the Battle for America. And he talked to host Jacoby Cochran. It's Monday, November 7th. I'm Carrie Shepard, and this is CityCast Chicago. How cool, interesting is it for you to write a whole book and all that's on the cover is the back of your head while, well, what do they call him? The great emancipator Abraham Lincoln and uh, the smoothest president we've ever known, Barry O, uh, is on the cover. How does that feel? It's your book and all we see is the back of your head. That's by design, man. That's how speechwriters are supposed to be. Another reporter who's a friend of mine said, you know, th- this is the first Washington memoir I've ever seen that features the back of the author's head. And I took that as a high compliment. (laughs) Cody, welcome to CityCast Chicago. Jacoby, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Cody, the 10 days in the title start in June 2015. The White House is awaiting Supreme Court decisions on the Affordable Care Act, same-sex marriage. So your staff is preparing speeches on outcomes for those. Then the mass shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston happens. Um, Obviously, this is a a lot of things happening at once, but you're seasoned at this point at the White House, so you've had weeks of uncertainty and tragedy like this before. Why write a book about the 10 days around these events in particular out of, you know, eight years? Yeah, because these events in particular all spoke directly to who we are as Americans and and whether or not we believe that all of us are created equal. I mean, it was basically 245 years of American history just swirling around at once. Uh, Whether or not we're going to stand up to white supremacy, whether or not we believe that gay Americans should be able to get married like the rest of us, whether or not we believe that somebody working two jobs should have access to affordable health insurance, whether or not black people should have to keep walking past a Confederate flag every day on the way to work, you know, and, and just, I remember telling people when I was writing this book, what it was about. And they all said, damn dude, I remember all those events. I forgot that they all happened in the same week. Yeah. You know, the thesis of this book I stole from um, a line that Obama added himself to the Selma speech, which is that, you know, politics is not a clash of armies, but a clash of wills. It's a contest to determine the true meaning of America. And we are engaged in that contest right now. You know, when you're thinking about those events, like, I I don't want to say rank the tragedies, but how do you all prioritize and decide how to deliver the message best to the American people? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we, as you mentioned before, we were working on four different speeches for each Supreme Court outcome because there were different possible outcomes and you don't want to make the country wait for six hours while you write something. So we needed these ready. Charleston is probably, well, it was, it was easily the most horrifying because it involved a racially motivated mass shooting, but it goes right at these unanswered questions from our history, not necessarily unanswered, but ones that we haven't taken the time to answer as a country. Um, Mm -hmm. that was the most important speech, you know, cause, cause that really could have that really could have torn the country apart. If you had, if you had a different president in office, say, who wanted to exploit our differences, um, Charleston is ready made for that. I mean, the killer explicitly said he wanted to start a race war. And exactly. what changed that entire week uh, was just two days after the shooting, um, the families of the victims all went to the killer's arraignment and they all forgave him one by one. 
uh, they were you know they were crying they were bawling they were they were wailing because they betted in me yeah they betted yeah in me. And, and you know if you I, I talked to obama's pastor joshua dubois right afterwards and he said you know that's if you're in the ame church that's not surprising because that's grace and forgiveness are fundamental tenets of the AME church. Right. Obama didn't want to give a eulogy and I didn't want to write one. And it was what those families did that actually changed his mind. I mean, how do you react to news to yet another mass shooting? And then when you find out just how deeply racist uh, it, it is, like, like, how do you maneuver through those? It was the next morning I was in the, I was in the White House by 530 because I knew I'd have to work on a statement. And the president's director of counterterrorism came in because she knew stuff that the general public didn't yet. And they, and they, they had gotten, he, the killer left one of the victims alive explicitly to tell the story. And, uh, mm -hmm. so, you know, he's a white supremacist and they'd already been looking into, you know, they had him from surveillance footage and they've been looking into his social media posts and, and he was a self-radicalized white supremacist. There was a real sense of like, like America doesn't have the ability to betray me, Cody, right? I, I, I kind of see it for what it is. And yet in that moment, I still allowed myself to, to kind of grieve in a way that felt fueled by confusion. I mean, you, you write about your constant battle with cynicism. You know, how do I write another thing about a shooting that actually carries meaning? When did that cynicism first hit in this job? Probably the same time it hit Barack Obama. The, the one time, the most cynical I ever saw him was actually in 2013. Um, this was after, uh, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the Newtown massacre when, when a guy took with an AR-15 went into an elementary school and murdered 20 little kids. I mean, six-year-olds, five-year-olds. That, that might've been one of the first times that the, the veneer of the presidency kind of came crumbling down a little bit and you just saw a man up there struggling to make sense of, of what was happening. Yep. I know there's not a parent in America who doesn't feel the same overwhelming grief that I do. The majority of those who died today were children, uh, beautiful little kids between the ages of five and 10 years old. And he set his second term agenda aside. He just won re-election and said, let's, let's try to do something about guns. And, and we gave it our best shot, knowing that the odds were long. And then Republicans in the Senate blocked a vote on, on a bipartisan background check bill with the parents of the victims looking on from the gallery. And that's about as cynical as I've ever seen Barack Obama. And, and he came in after speaking in the Rose Garden and said, you know, the next time this happens, I don't want to speak. You know, what am I going to say? And Charleston really put that to the test. And he, he, until and it was, it was the sixth day after the shooting when he finally said, you know what, I'll, I'll go down there and I'll speak about what those families did because grace is powerful. Grace is potent. Are you self-conscious about your smile? Do you only allow yourself a closed mouth grin? Well, with Aligner Experts, there's no reason for you to diminish your smile. As orthodontists, they have the privilege of witnessing the remarkable transformation of patient smiles, which often translates into a profound boost in their confidence. Yet, there always seems to be a deterrent. I ain't got the time, I don't have the funds. Luckily, Aligner Experts is redefining convenient and accessible clear aligner solutions. With customizable treatments, transparent pricing, and their cutting edge 3D scanners and dental monitoring technology, 
you could transform your smile through the convenience of your own schedule. Stop in at their West Loop or Lakeview Clinic today for your complimentary smile assessment. Aligner Experts, your destination for advanced clear aligner solutions. P.S. They got another clinic on the way, so stay tuned for their Old Town location. I mean, it's impossible, right, not to talk about race in this situation. The killer is on a racist rampage. They openly spew right supremacy and kind of far-right radical views. South Carolina was was facing calls to pull down Confederate flags. But can you talk about writing for not only a, a black man, but the first black president about race as a white guy from Chicago? Yeah. I struggled with it. I, I write about that openly in the book because, you know, mm -hmm. you, you like to think that you're on the right side of all these issues. But there are there are limits to empathy. I will never know what it's like to be a black man in America. Um, but Barack Obama does. And, you know, fortunately, he was really our chief speechwriter. And I'd sit down and be like, listen, talk to me about how this makes you feel. Talk to me about what you want to say. Talk to me about the story you want to tell. And fortunately, I didn't have to insert myself into these speeches, but I, I really yeah. needed guidance from him. It was always helpful. I remember a shocking moment that week for me was that when I, when I read the killers kind of, you know, rambling, meandering bullshit, um, I didn't find it surprising that somebody could have those mm -hmm. thoughts in America, but I was surprised by the family's act of grace. And I thought, how backwards is that? You talk about, about Barry O, I'm gonna call him that, hopefully he's cool with it, right? You talk about him being the chief speechwriter. You know, how do you collaborate to, to, to highlight his experiences as a black man? Do you ever feel, you know, when you're writing the draft up, like, well, will he say that? Does, does this feel fraudulent? How'd you come into your confidence being that, you know, that, that, that ghostwriter? You can call him that. I still call him sir. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, if I ever see him in person, I'm, I'm gonna just cry. So I'm not gonna call him <laughs> anything. So <laughs> it was, I always needed his guidance on this stuff. Um, because it was it it really was a challenge. You always wanted to do it justice. It's I I never really worried that I would get it wrong. I just I worried that mm. I would get it the right level of right. Um, and he'd had you know he he'd written a memoir before we ever started working for him, so it was helpful to see that you know he's right. been he's been asked for his ID. You know when he was a college student, a cop stopped him on campus on his own college campus and asked him for his ID. Right? He's He's talked about taxis passing him by. He's talked about being followed in a department store. You know, one other moment I write about in the book was the morning after the Trayvon verdict, um, which we all knew was this just gross miscarriage of justice that the, the killer got off and there were no black people on the jury. And I went into the Oval Office with uh, the president, Valerie Jarrett, and Danielle Gray, who was just one of his smartest advisors. She'd been a Supreme Court clerk. Um, and I was the only white person in the Oval. And, and that you know, you're very aware that you're the only white person in the Oval. And I had written a draft for him and he just didn't even want to see it. He said, look, I know what I want to say here. Um, mm -hmm. But here's the other thing about being the first black president. He knew that what he wanted to say wasn't necessarily what he could say. That if he went out there and he was the angry black man, that could actually do a disservice to his presidency and to uh, actually getting things done. So, So a lot of the job was just unfair to him. That has got to be frustrating, right? Every president prior to could be angry, could be frustrated, could be loud, could be rambunctious. But, you know, you raise your voice too much, you know, and an, an entire segment of our population uh, will, will use that against yeah. you.
I, I think the first time I really exhaled after all eight years was when ta Coates wrote for eight years, Barack Obama walked on ice and never fell. By the end of the book, after the 10 days, is the president's eulogy at AME. Right, you wrote about your struggles to write it. You, we've talked about the self-doubt, the frustration. You know How much of that eulogy we all saw is you, and how much is it you know, President Obama, like you said earlier, being like, you know, I think I know what I, I need to say here. What, what I'm really excited for is when uh, all of the drafts will be available to the public when the Presidential Center finally opens. Because uh, people will see, people will be able to see exactly wow. how much work he did on these speeches, especially on this speech. And in this case, the fact that he rewrote half of it by hand, because I was genuinely struggling with this and I didn't even share it with staff. I finally gave it to him the night before and told him, I was like, listen, I, I think the first half of it is sound. Second half, I need help. Um, and he said, all right, well, I'll, t I'll take a look at it and I'll get you draft. I'll get you edits early in the morning. He ended up calling me that night. <clears throat> and asked me to come back to the White House at 11 o'clock. And we sat on the first floor of the residence and went through it. And he had just drawn one big line through pages three and four of a four page speech. And he had never done that to me before. I'd had, I'd had three mm. days to draft this and he rewrote it by hand in three hours. Professionally, what, what are you processing? I was both relieved that he had dived in and the muse hit. Um, but I, I also felt very guilty that I just couldn't get it there. Uh, and I told him as much. And for the first time in, in our relationship, I apologized to him. And this is what makes him such a good boss. You know, he, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, look, brother, we're collaborators. You, you gave me what I needed to work with here. You're going to see some of your work in, in my writing. And look, when you've been thinking about race for 40 years, you'll know what you want to say here too. And mm -hmm. that just meant a lot to me. You end up watching the eulogy from Air Force One. What were the emotions of that experience now seeing the, this final speech that you both have kind of, kind of poured and struggled over together? At that point, I'm just relieved that, that my job is over and the speech is now out there. You know, it's out of my hands. Nobody cares about me anymore. Uh, what, what I was looking forward to was he'd actually said that morning on the helicopter on our way to Andrews Air Force Base, you know, he'd added the lyrics to Amazing Grace the night before. And he said, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. And mm -hmm. I'm sitting there watching and you know, he's going to sing as soon as you see, I mean, this is a black church service. This is an AME church service. You know, it, it, ladies are in their Sunday hats. The organist is playing through people's remarks. You just know he's going to sing. And he pauses for about 11 seconds. And my first thought is, oh my God, everybody at home is going to think he's missing a page of the speech, mm -hmm. but he was just collecting himself. And then he starts to sing. Amazing. <laughs> How sweet the sound that saved a and it was just this amazing moment and what's really special about it too is how often you know, this was this was not just a black president. He be, he was a black preacher in that moment, speaking to a black church mm -hmm. service, eulogizing a black pastor. And it's it's how often is something like that a quintessentially American event that everybody's watching? And it was just this kind of really amazing moment. You know, the epilogue is about the hellacious thing that happens after Obama leaves, right? We're talking Trump, the insurrection, a pandemic. You know, 
Did you lose hope during those years as you're grappling with, as you said earlier, like this battle for what is America moving forward? It, it felt like it was more evident than ever before. I think of something Obama said the day after Trump won. He said, listen, I know people like to mock me for talking about hope, but people need to remember that when I first talked about it on the campaign, I, I always said it was, it was never, you know, blind optimism or willful ignorance. Hope is um, believing that if you, if you work hard enough, change is possible. And it's times like this, when you need hope the most, you don't need hope when everything's going great. You need hope when it's not. And this is me talking now. I, I think hope is actually a lot harder than cynicism. Uh, it's easy to be cynical. You know, if you just, if you just assume everybody's always going to let you down, then you're never going to be let down. But if you can allow yourself to believe that every once in a while someone's going to surprise you on the upside, that's a much better feeling. Cody Keenan is the author of the new book, Grace, President Obama in 10 Days in the Battle for America. and was Obama's chief speechwriter. Thank you, Cody, for joining us on CityCast Chicago. Jacoby, thanks so much, man. And some news before we let you go. The city council is set to vote today on Mayor Lori Lightfoot's $16.4 billion spending plan. Check out today's Hey Chicago newsletter for details on what's included at chicago.citycast.fm. Students at Jones College Prep in the South Loop are planning to walk out this afternoon to protest how the school handled a student who appeared to be dressed in a Nazi uniform on Halloween. CPS says it's launched an investigation and removed Jones principal Joseph Powers on Friday. And some good news. If we haven't told you enough, I'll tell you again. It's election day tomorrow. Put aside all the nasty commercials and celebrate your role in democracy. I love voting on election day. Okay, that's it for me today. Jacoby's back in the host seat tomorrow. Talk to you later. And we've heard a lot of speeches and we'll hear even more tomorrow night. Tomorrow is very hard to say. Tomorrow, tomorrow.